The path he forged in the game of golf was a distinctive one, and I dare say it's one that has never been forged before or since, called the Peacock of the Fairways for his stylish attire. His life could have been even more colorful than that, indeed. I'm speaking, of course, of Doug Sanders. Uh, as much a man known for the way he looks, sometimes his golfing attributes are overlooked. Take, for example, in 1966, he won three times. He finished tied for fourth, tied for eighth, tied for second, and tied for sixth in that year's four major championships. Multiple second-place finishes in majors, a man with more than 20 professional wins. Doug Sanders is, in a word, unique. Thank you, Matt. It's my pleasure to be here with you. Thank you, sir. Your background, let's, let's go, if you would allow, to the beginning. How did your path in life take you to the stage that was the highest tier of golf in the world? Well, you would be surprised if I may start back a little long time ago. My mom and dad had to pick 100 pounds of cotton a day for a dollar. That's what the family lived on. My dad told me that during the Depression, he walked five miles in the morning and five miles back for 50 cents a day. Now, they also tell me a story about before I was born, my brother was four years of age and my sister was three, lived on the farm, and when they brought the coal in, they just poured it out in the backyard, and he found a little thing that looked like a firecracker or something in it. And it was told me that he was kidding my sister about shooting it with a firecracker. She ran into the kitchen and he lit it with a splinter, but it wasn't a firecracker, it was a dynamite cap. It blew both of his eyes out and his fingers off. He was blind all of his life till 69, passed away. My other brother at 18 went into the Marine Corps later on in life, and a hand grenade blew his right arm off, and he died at a fairly young age. And I started walking the golf course two and a half miles with no shoes. I didn't have my own shoes until I was about 12. Hand me down, two lefts or two rights. Take the scissors and cut them out and put the tape and everything over them. But whenever we'd finished, the caddies weren't allowed to play. And there was only about five or six of us. Because you've got 25 cents for nine holes and 35 cents for 18 holes. But you normally just carried the bag along, you know, and they took the clubs out. You didn't have to do anything. But so I'd make a few nickels and dimes and looking for balls. But then we took around the back and the guys had some couple of wooden sticks and the holes and we'd putt and chip and everything. And they beat me out of my money. And I'd walk up that road at night, two and a half miles back home. And the lightning bugs, they looked like ghosts. And I'd run maybe the last mile and go to sleep with my clothes on. Get up in the morning with the same clothes and walk back before daybreak and go to sleep sitting on the, sitting on the, the stairs to look for balls. I didn't get tired of going up the road. I got tired of going up the road broke. And later on in life, I started chipping and putting, and they didn't know anything about it for about three years. Now I'm about, oh, 13. And the four of us worked all week long, made $5 a piece. Cat in. And I says, come on, guys, let's go chip and putt. They says, come on, sucker. We didn't have any year money in a long time. Let's, let's, go, let's go do it. And that night, those lightning bugs, they never looked like ghosts again when I walked up that road with those four or five bills in my pocket. <laughs> so I knew what it took was that burning desire, that killing instinct, that will to win, to be able to make something happen. And that's what I had. But i got to tell you something other. It was one of the most exciting things I've ever done in my life. I went uptown and bought myself my new shoes. I'm walking down the street on the sidewalk there, and I think everybody in the cars is looking out the window at my shoes, and I'm trying to take my shoes and stick it out there a little further from the seat, you know. <laughs> I was so proud of my own shoes. So that started me off, and then when I was about 
about that age, the pro took a luck into me, Maurice Hudson. He was a pro there. And I started chipping and putting. We didn't have a driving range. But he let me go down between a hole where the, the guys never normally, the tee shot would never land. And I'd hit practice there early in the morning, late in the afternoon. And I'd, sometimes I'd have a divot, maybe 10 yards long, right on the edge, and I could take dirt and put it back in there. So finally, when I was 17, I shot 29 in the high school tournament. Made a hole in one and a hole out on a par five for another eagle. And so they thought I could play. They sent me off to Augusta, Georgia. And I stayed with a buddy of mine, didn't have any money. And I qualified for this junior tournament. I came back to my hometown. And, of course, we didn't have any money. My mom, she got a job down at a cotton mill. She was making 20 cents an hour. And my dad was a truck driver. And so now that 10 men got together. Because I had no money to go to Durham, North Carolina. That's where the finals was. And you stayed at Duke University. But I got to get up there. And they got together, 10 of them, and gave me $10 a piece. And I bought the ticket up there on a train. I think it was $18.50 or whatever it was. And we played two matches a day for about, I think, four or five days, whatever it was, five, maybe five days. And I won the championship. Mm. And I'm holding the trophy. And all the pressure's out there and everything's going, and I don't know what's happening here. And the thing, but Miss North Carolina is standing there. And they says, Miss North Carolina, give the National Junior a kiss. I'm 17, she's about 19. She bent over and kissed my lips, and a few minutes later said, do it another one while we can get some more pictures. Did it again. Now finally another 20 minutes went by, you know, and everything. So now this time, just put your lips together and just hold them together while we get the pictures. You're doing it too quick. Our lips just hung together. He came out on Golf World, Golf Digest, whatever it was in the magazines, and it says, National Junior Champ and Miss North Carolina playing post office. <laughs> now, later on, I'm in a drive-in theater with a buddy of mine, and I didn't know. Uh, I'm sitting in the back seat, and he's in the front seat with this date. He says, Doug, isn't that you up there? I looked up, and they were making a movie about me all this time. And it was called The Boy Next Door. <laughs> it was a 30-minute movie back in those days. It's the main feature, sometimes they had a 30-minute short about something other very unusual. And it was about me winning this championship. And it came to my hometown in the movie. And all the little girls were running, hey, Doug, hey, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> of course, you'd think I didn't like that. I did, too. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it, it, it doesn't take a genius to figure out why you decided that golf was going to be your pathway. <laughs> I enjoyed all of that. But that was my start. And I, whenever that I won the, that national championship, um, one of the largest tournaments in, in Georgia, I mean in the, in the U U.S. I got a scholarship off the University of Florida. And the coach came up there the night I graduated and offered me everything to go down there. But I had won a lot of tournaments, okay? Mm -hmm. And the Southeastern Amateur and all those things. And so I went off to University of Florida. And I went there for three years. And I won a lot of things, and we had a great teams and everything. But I had to make a decision. Do I play golf, or do I give up golf and study? I majored in physical education. I could, you know, get a job driving a truck, make more money than I could what I was doing. Mm. So I met a man from Canada named Brad Street, which I named my son after later on when I got married, had a son. And he helped me a lot, get started and everything, and sent me over to play in a British amateur. And the guy found he was playing me, then he wouldn't even bring a change of clothes because he knew I was going to beat him because I was playing that good. 
And I'm playing that small ball, and I hit everything right over the stick. Right over the stick. It hit and bounced over and everything. And every time he says, great shot, Mr. Doogie, but through the green, through the green, I got beat the first match. I came back to Toronto. He says, Doug, there's a big tournament over there. And go over to Montreal. Big, uh, Beacons, I think it's Beaconfields Country Club. Biggest tournament in Canada called Canadian Open. Mm. I'm 22 years of age. I never played in a professional tournament before. Hogan and Palmer and everybody in the is out there. Well, I end up tying down against the wall, and I beat him in the playoff to win the first tournament I ever played in. I'm the only amateur that won the Canadian Open. Back then, when you turned pro, you couldn't receive any money for six months. You were neither a pro or an amateur. So I went down to South America with Palmer, Roberto DiVincenzo, and Tony Sert and all that. I played in four tournaments. I finished ninth, seventh, second, and first. And I came by, and over the period of time, I found it now, all the companies wanted me to sign with them. Hmm. As I recall, I went with Wilson, which was Wilson, I do remember that. And um, so I got the most money I think they paid anybody back in those days. I got $5,000. Because they knew I could win, because I just won. But I went on to win 20 tournaments. And there's only been, uh, they says, three people that's turned pro in the last 40 years to win more than 20 tournaments. And that's Phil Mickelson, BJ Singh, and Tiger that turned pro in the last 40 years. But Palmer and those guys turned pro, you know, 50, mm. 55 years ago, whatever it was. But this game has been so good to me, but I would not have done any of that if it had not been the fact those 10 men gave me a $10 apiece and sent me off to qualify for the junior championship. And I don't know what I would have done in, in school, you know, with not the education and everything. I mean, would I have been driving a truck or working a service station, whatever. I didn't I don't know. But God just gave me that opportunity and those men did. So I owe something of the back. I have worked so hard in the junior golf program to give back something up to the game. They say when you die, the only thing you can carry with you is what you gave away. Hmm. And I'm trying to give these men, young men and young women, an opportunity to go to schools where they will become successful. In return, they will give back like I did. Now, the guy last year won the Masters. Adam Scott, he won my tournament one year. Steve Ogden won my tournament. Billy Mayfair and Andy McGee, a lot of them won, you know, the Doug Sanders tournament. But this is just, and I had the opportunity of playing golf with presidents and one king all over the world. But one of the things that I have cherished more than as much as anything, I have gotten been able to get up in more fighter planes than any civilian. I got a letter from Air Force Wisconsin, and they said there would never be a civilian to have gone up in the many fighter planes. They don't even know how many guys in the military has ever been able to do that. But I got up in the Phantom of four, the F-106. I got three traps, they call them traps, of the USS America and the F-14. I got up in the F-15, the F-16, the F-18, wow. the F-111, the B-1, the U-2. I'm on spacesuit, the replica of the Wright Brothers plane. And there was one plane that was called, I think, the C-5A or something other. But they had two Gatling guns together. You could shoot about 3,000 rounds a minute. They had three guys with big shovels, shoveling the shells out the window. Oh, my gosh. And I spent seven and a half hours on a nuclear sub. And they came back in and put the balls in the deck, and I knocked the balls out in the ocean and everything. But a life I've lived, you know, it has just been unbelievable. And I, one time I was talking to Kevin Costner, and he says, Sanders, you're the only guy that I know. He said, I might even play your life so we're free if I could play the real Doug Sanders. I said, if you did, we'd both get shot. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
But being able to, you know, to run with the Rat Pack and all my life with Sinatra and Dean Martin and Sammy Davis and all those guys, Jack Lemon, and they all came and played my tournament. I stayed at their house and they stayed at my house. And Sinatra one time was staying at the house. I said, Francis, they call you the trim of the board. Now, every year this guy would give me a pool table cloth, a pool table, and had a cloth and gave me an extra cloth. And I'd get Sammy Davis and John Dammer and Ingebert Humphrey and Goulet, Victor Mum, Bob Hope, Sammy Davis, everybody to sign the cloth, and I'd auction off the table for Junior Golf. I had an extra cloth there. I said, I'll cut this down and get some of your board members. He said, okay, so he signed it. I cut it down about four feet, four feet. I'm playing golf with the president of Indonesia, President Sarto. He signed it. Um, Marcos of the Philippines signed it. Prince and Princess of Sweden signed it. Prince Bernard and his wife in the Netherlands signed it. And Romans was a couple of presidents after Marcos, and he signed it. And Henry Kissinger signed it. Margaret Thatcher and John Major signed it. And then Reagan, Nixon, Clinton, Carter, Ford, Rayton Bush. And Holy cow. Signed it. So, you know, things like that I've been able to. What'd you do with it? I still have it in my house. Wow. And, uh, but I'll show you a picture of that, but you won't believe. But the things that I've got that I'm just going to leave back. Right now I've got everything in the, in the uh, all storage. And I want to, I'm trying to find a place right now to put everything, but you would never believe in the world what I have and what I've... I spent oh, over $150,000 just in postage all the time of getting the things. But I got it now in a safe. Well, not in a safe, but, you know, in the storage. I'm looking for a place to put it. And right now, I, I have the idea now maybe talking to the, maybe the mayor of, of Houston and maybe of Palm Springs and things of that nature. But what I've got in, in the paintings I've got with all the guys that stood in front that won three majors or more, I have a full-size painting done of them with the got bags in front. And that there's about 12 or 13 of those guys. They've signed them. Yeah. Now, I think there's 24 guys that I've counted of the bags that I have at the house that uh, they, I couldn't get them to sign it because it, uh, they're, they're dead, Bobby Jones, Walter Hagen. But I've got a painting done of all, most all of those guys. Hmm. But it just goes on and on, and the golf bag signed by the guys that won the, the uh, Super Bowl coaches and the quarterbacks that got the gloves. I got the bags signed by all the guys except maybe a couple in the last ones, except Vince Lombardi that has won the Super Bowl. But I'm always dreaming up something other different to do. And I just came up with the idea not too long ago. I went back and got the gloves of all the guys that has won the U.S. Open and the U.S. Amateur. They signed and put them in frames. There's six of us that won professional tournaments as an amateur. Freddie Haas, Frank Stranahan, um, Gene Littler, Scott Perplank, and Phil Mickelson, and myself. I got those gloves. Now, the project I'm working on right now is that I'm working on in Australia. I'm getting everybody there that's won a major. Peter Thompson won five majors. I'm going to send him the balls from all five places and a glove. And kill Nagel and all the people and put all those things in the frames. But it's just... I dream these things up. But to dream up something other, to think about getting it done is one thing. But getting it done is, is the real thing. That's the you lesson know. of life, isn't it? Pardon me? Oh, yes. But I've been able, you know, to reach around and get the things done and everything. But when you just see some of this, it's unbelievable. So, But I just want, again, to leave something in the mind. But I want my museum to be different than any other museum. Well, normally, when you have a museum, as I've seen, it has a certain amount of footage in it. And after it's full, it's full. They maybe take a, place, a piece out now and then and put another piece in. But I want mine to be like this. So maybe this right here 
using my fingers here, maybe this is 2014. You're just it, showing that it's going to grow, right? Yeah, but maybe down here, this is 2020. This is 2030, 40, 50. You know. Mr. Sanders is spreading his fingers apart, showing yeah. the growth of it. Yeah. You know, if, if we could for a second, I want to go back to your childhood where you were talking about learning how to, chipping, how to chip and putt. Can you remember your first set of golf clubs? Um, let me think. Well, they, I remember that they gave me a couple of clubs and everything when I was, uh, when I was still caddying up there. Well, I signed with Wilson. Mm-hmm. So Wilson would have probably made the first set. So what was it like for you when you went from being a kid that self-taught, learning the game, few people take you under your wings, you learn the tenacity that it takes to, to be victorious in any situation. What was it like when you were around the legends of the game? Were they legends to you? Were they people that you looked up to? Oh, yes. Yes, you know, but I, I just had to stay away because I felt like, you know, a small, you know, person to them. But again, whenever I won the Canadian Open as an amateur, they have a tournament in Las Vegas called the Tournament Champions. Mm -hmm. And everybody won, went out there. Well, I'm out there now, and I met Sinatra and Sammy Davis and John Wayne. I met all the celebrities. And man, I don't know why, but that it was like I was their little son or something other. Sinatra says, well, I'll take him, you know, we'll go to Chicago. Let's go to, you know, this and that and the other. And Dean Martin says, no, we're going to go to Atlanta, Georgia and play. We're going to go to Chicago. <laughs> and Sammy Davis said, Sammy used to come to my house all the time, and Elder Bees called us. But you have to know what they saw in you. What was it? I, I don't know. I just laughed and cut up with them in a few drinks, and we laughed about this. Give him a blonde. No, he had a blonde last night. Give him another day. Give him a redhead tomorrow night, you know. <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't believe all this that was happening to me, and I just loved it, you know. And it was just like, I mean, something other that you couldn't really think that was happening to you was something other maybe you could read about that was a fantasy. It would never happen, but it was happening to me. When did you become so distinctive then with the fashion? Was that part of your of your youth where you didn't have these luxuries, and once you could afford them, you were going to enjoy it? Well, I got to tell you something I did, and I don't know why I did it. Of course, I didn't have any money. But one time, how it ever happened, I don't know, but I had a pair of blue jeans, and they got sent to the uh, laundry. And they came back and had a crease in them. Man, I love that stuff, okay? Then I started <laughs> saving my money, and I think it was 35 cents to send them off, you know, and get, uh, have them clean laundry and everything with it with a crease and everything in them. Man, I thought I was, you know, wearing a tuxedo, you know, down the street. <laughs> so that started me on that thing. And then, the, but the first thing I did in, in that, later on, I was the first guy to put the gloves together. And then a good friend of mine, he named his son after me, Lloyd Pitzer. He says, Doug, he says, uh, you got to get the shoes. And I met a company and everything, and they started making the shoes for me. Well, the shoes was the next big step of becoming a real top dresser and being the first one. I had the first one with the gloves and then the, then the shoes. But then this one guy told me, he says, Doug, in order for us to make you a pair of shoes, we have to buy enough material to make 600 pairs of shoes. Whenever they first started, had to make all this stuff. They just couldn't make enough stuff, you know, have one pair of shoes made. And then they started making all the shoes that other people, you know, would buy. But now, whenever that they made the shoes, the pinks, lebanons, purples, and greens, and everything, I found eventually a couple of companies did that. But one thing that they didn't do, they didn't have the dress shoes. 
So now all these shoes, now like these shoes I have on here, pink. Now they are, they are uh, that my wife, she would buy a lot of these things. They were the white valleys. Mm-hmm. Now that's the type you could dye. So I would take them down and have a match to all of the my colored shoes. Pinks, lavenders, purples, greens, and everything. So I couldn't go out and play in, in purple shoes with a purple outfit on and wearing black shoes or white shoes, you know, no. out to the golf course. So I had a purple to go with it. So then that's the way I started doing all the <laughs> shoes. But now that whenever I went on a tour, maybe I'm on a tour, you know, for four or five or six weeks at a time. So I normally, you know, carried 25, 30, 35 pairs of shoes. And I had one old big old thing that I had that I could put 25 pairs of shoes in. Holy toy. And then whenever I went in, I'd always put the shoes right along the the uh, the, uh, the edge of the, of the of the walls in the bedroom at the hotels. So I went in, I could see what colors they were. You know, I could pick them out. Then I have my ex-wife now was one of my greatest friends, Scotty Sanders. We were married for 27 years. She's one of the nicest ladies in the world, and she just has given her whole life to the church. She hadn't had a date in 19 years. But she just married the church, and I help her a lot with help the kids go to school and everything. And but then she started then to seeing that my underwear was matched, my shoes. And I remember one time I was in Phoenix, Arizona, and I had to go in to get a flu shot or something other. And the doctor was going to shoot me in my hip there, and I took my pants down, and I got on a purple thing, but purple underwear. And he said, wait a minute, Doug, wait a minute. you got to stop right here. you got, I got to call my uh, my secretary in there. She loves purple. <laughs> <laughs> so i got to show her, you know, my purple underwear. <laughs> I said, well, maybe there's something other to this. <laughs> At your height, how many pairs of shoes then did you have? Oh, probably about 50, 60 pairs then. But then I had, the most I've had has been 251 pairs. <laughs> <laughs> the pants, the sweaters, the shirts, you had everything. Oh, yes. Well, my, as I told you, my ex-wife, she spent 137000 redoing my attic, my closet, and, mm-hmm. and, the, and everything. You wouldn't believe all the stuff. I've got some pictures that I'll show you. Some of But probably it was about, oh, it was almost like from here to the end of the wall down there. Now, this was all glass. About 30 feet, 30 by 30? Yeah. All <laughs> All glass, and you just move the glass back and forth, and all the shoes were facing you, all the top down, all the way down, and the sweaters and everything on the other side, and then the big, huge drawers. Now, but, what was that all about for you, Mr. Sanders? Well, was, I just enjoyed the color. Was it? Yeah. It wasn't a reflection of your youth when you couldn't have these things? Well, I'm sure it was, you know, because, but more, I always wanted, it's like anything else in life. Like I told you, I got tired of going up that road broke, but you've got to have that burning desire, that killing instinct, that will to win, to be more successful. You've got to work at it harder. But if you, you can't ever reach the point where you think, well, I'm there now. You think if you're there, no, going this way, no, you're always going down. If you're not going up, you're going down. It's pretty hard to stay right on there. So I wanted to keep doing something different all the time. When you look back on your life now, though, what would you pinpoint as the pinnacle of your existence? Well, I think most of that was... The burning desire to be successful and to look forward to making something happen. It's just like trying to get, having an idea of getting a golf bag signed by a president. I mean, you can think about having it done, yeah. but, getting it, but really getting it done is another thing. Sure. So that's the thing I was always able to do was to try to find the manners a way to make it happen. And those are things you have to constantly work at. Mm-hmm. 
You can't ever get to the point, well, I'm there now. You know, no. You're going down if you just stop there. You've got to keep that burning desire to keep working hard. And that's the thing that's driven me more in golf. And I practice and practice and practice. I mean, hours and hours, my hands would bleed when I was a young man. I'd have to soak them in water in the morning to break them back open and pick up a fork to eat. But that wasn't work to me. That was still pleasure. I mean, they would get so wet with the blood and everything, I'd have to put a, a cloth around them to be able to hold on to practice. But again, I never looked at it as hard work. It was that desire to get a little bit better. How much of your desire to get better and how much of your drive to succeed was based on fear? Based on fear. Well, I didn't have the, the fear. I always seemed to have a, a vision, a way to look at something other, a little bit more out there mm-hmm. to find a little bit better way to approach it in a little different way. It's like whenever I went out there to play golf and I practiced, I never left the driving range until I hit two low hooks, two high hooks, two low fades, two high fades. Two low shots and two high shots. Because if you had to use it in the first few holes of that day, it's still fresh in your mind. So you're always ready for it. And I think that's the thing that, you know, that drove me of always trying to think of something a little different. And I'd get it down where I could hook it. I'd walk up there and I'd get a hook at 10 yards. i just set the club down, think 10 yards, boom, there. Because I'd done it so many times. And I think that's the thing that a lot of the kids today, don't, they don't work hard enough. Lot, when I was on the tour, some of the guys would have their sons to come and see me and this and that and the other. And I think the thing that they realized right off the bat, you got to work harder. you got to work more and more. you got to set goals that are hard to reach, but are reachable. And once you reach them, you got to have another goal. Mm-hmm. Always have that goal out there to keep moving forward. And that's what makes a champion. That's what makes a good player and a person to become successful. What was it like for you once you started to compete in earnest against the likes of, at, at, by the time uh, you were out there, Mr. Hogan was older, but Sneed was still in full form and all the other great players. It, in fact, let me ask you this question, if I may, sir. Did you ever have a conversation with Ben Hogan about your game? Did he ever give you any observations? Well, during the time that I wanted to get some golf balls and gloves and everything signed, it was hard to get them signed by Ben Hogan. Mm-hmm. But I'd call his secretary, and she'd invite me up to have lunch. And I'd go up, I'd take a fly up to, from Dallas to Houston. I mean, from Houston to Dallas, go over to Fort Worth, and I'd have a town car to take me over for an hour. Either pick me up an hour later or stay there for an hour. And she'd order a sandwich or something or other. And we'd go in, and I'd go in his office. He'd sign the stuff and want to talk. But it was very hard to talk to Ben. He wanted you to talk. He didn't want to, you know, talk about himself. He wanted to listen more to you about what you had to do and so forth. Ben only had, from what I could feel and see out of Ben, he only had one desire in life, and that was to win. He had that burning desire, that killing instinct to win, and he worked hard at it. He didn't have time for other stuff. You know, he did. He just wanted to devote that time. And I had Andy Williams one time. Andy was a great friend of mine, and he came to a lot of the tournaments I wanted to go to and Dean Martin and Bob Hope. Bob went every place for me. <laughs> and Sammy Davis and everybody. I was up in uh, in um, Fort Worth 
and over there, Ben was playing the gin rummy at the club he always goes to. We're there. And I introduced him to Andy Williams. And Andy shook his hand. He says, Mr. Hogan, I don't believe this. This is one of the greatest pleasures I've ever had to shake Ben Hogan's hands. You know, I thought that was so so nice. You know, but Andy is shook hands with everybody, you know. How did Mr. Hogan react? He just shook his hand and said, thank you. You know, quiet. But, you know, Ben never told any jokes, you know, to make you laugh or anything like that. But he was a... He wanted to win. Let me tell you something other. And he did. Mm. He had that. He had that instinct, and, and that's only desire that I ever saw. And he worked in that direction constantly. Yeah. But I played with him at Fort Worth and everything. But and I won a Colonial one year, and I played with Ben. But it almost made me cry that one time I'm playing with him. This was later in the parts of his his life, and he was over about a four footer, and get this trying to get the club back. He was shaking. And his hands would just shake so bad and he finally, you know, yeah. hit it. But the last place he ever played was there in, uh, at Champions Country Club. Mm -hmm. I think it was on the fourth hole, the par three, the number three balls in the lake, and that's when he quit. In 1967, you were a member of his Ryder Cup team. What was that like? <laughs> that's an experience I shall never forget in my life. Ben Hogan, some of the things that he said and did, <laughs> he got us all together. He said there, and his voice raised his voice, Gentlemen, he said, I want you to know one thing. Being the captain of the Ryder Cup team, he says, one thing I do not want is my name on that losing cup. You do understand, don't you? Yes, Captain. Yes, Captain. He got up that night, and he told everybody at the, at the dinner, he says... Of all the great players I've ever seen in my life, he says, I've never seen a team this good. He said, now the other team said, he says, there's no team can beat this team. And tell him, you know, we're better than Well, he put so much pressure on us. He'd come up to you and he'd stop you about 10 or 12 feet, put his hand up. He had a drink in one hand, a cigarette in another one. He'd take a puff of cigarette, blow it out, sip his drink, and he'd walk right up to you. Doug, yes, sir. You will win today, won't you? Yes, Captain. Because you came in. He said, Doug, you won, didn't you? You want to tell him no? <laughs> no, you didn't want to tell him no. <laughs> We'd be two down, three to go, finish Eagle, Bird Eagle or something. To win one up. We kicked their ass, okay? <laughs> but we had to because we had the fear of us in, in there because we did not want to tell Ben Hogan we lost. And that's one of the worst beatings I think the European team ever took, you know. Your your finishes in, in major championships uh, are distinctive. Uh, 25 top 25s, 13 top 10s, and as I mentioned, second place four times. Uh, I realize it's it's virtually inevitable in any conversation that you have that, that the 1970 Open Championship will be mentioned. Your life is colorful in so many ways. I almost have a sense of guilt of apology of bringing it up, but what are your memories of the same? Well, i got to tell you something. I have never, of all the great things or the worst things happened in my life, if I could take two or three of the best or two or three of the worst, I've never thought of them together as much as I have, missing that putt. I don't intend to. But I just, sometimes I wake up and think about, well, if I made that, you know, 
I'd had bone jet. I'd had this, that, and the other, you know. I mean, but all those things in your mind, that that one little putt that made all the difference. And I blame myself for it because I'd worked so hard to get where I got. And right at the last moment, I changed my whole thoughts. The first thing that I did, the caddy used to get it for Tony Lima. Tony was one of my best friends. And I was going to be on a plane with him when it went down. It was on my birthday. And right at the last minute, I changed my mind when I talked to one of the PGA officials. And so I was with my son, and I was going to went over to get on the plane with him. And so I decided not to. And the guy said, well, come on, Doug. Come on back over the house. We'll have a birthday party for you. And I Why did you change your mind for that? Well, I was going to go down and play in a, in a one-day tournament in, um, I think, in Ohio um, for, I think it was Jack Nicklaus's tournament. And I decided because my, my hand, I'd burnt my fingers. I was showing my son how not to shoot bottle rockets, and one of them backfired on me. Oh. And it got worse, and I told the official that, that I wasn't going to, I didn't think I could go down, and I think they wrote an article saying that I wasn't going to come down. And later on, um, I was talking to one of the guys, the company I was representing. He said, Doug, if you could go down and maybe meet the governor, you know, it would be easier yeah. for us to maybe get in. And I said, well, I'll try to do that. But now, I, I, the last day, my finger was so bad, and I saw the official as I was going in to get my clothes and everything, and I told him that I wasn't going to. You ever go? He said, Doug, they've already wrote an article said you're coming, you know. Mm. And I said, well, and my son said, come on, Dale, let's go with Tony. And that's when Tony had chartered the plane. That's when the, the airlines were on strike. And um, I said, well, no, well, I better, well, you, you know, Doug, if you don't go, you know, you, you already told him you were going to come. You told me you were going to, I said, well, I said, I'm going to try to come. And finally, the guy said, well, come on, Doug, I'll take you over the house. We'll have a little birthday party for that. Went over there with him. Two hours later, they came in and told me the plane went down and no survivors. Wow. So that's how close that you are in that thing. Indeed. You know. But let, let's go back to that 18th green that, that day. Well, it's, uh, what I did... Say, how long was the putt? Well, first of all, let me tell you what happened to me. All right. It was a series of one after another one. But the first thing, the first match that was struck, the caddy gave me a white tee to me always represented five. Just, the, you know, something other why you have those loads, I don't know. Well, you mark your ball. You know, if the penny was turning your heads or tails, you know, this, that, and the other meant that you know that you're going to make a three or four or whatever. Oh, no. <laughs> so this this caddy, caddy for Tony, gave me a tea. He said, Doug, use this in memory of Tony. It had his name on it. It was a white tea. I didn't want to use I said, well, yeah, but I'll use it for Tony. Anyway. I had a good tea shop up there. That's the first time I'd use these clubs. And I, I was, I think, 87 yards away. That's what the caddy told me, but it looked a little strange. And I said, well, I'll just walk up there and see. And I'm thinking about, too, having I'm making it easier for the press, you know, to talk about, well, now Doug is walking up there to be sure, you know, got the right club to be sure, you know, something that doesn't happen. I walked up and walked back. I hit the shot, but knocked it about 25 feet past the hole. Well, then that set the whole thing. Now, when I knocked the ball down, I'm playing with Trevino, Leads about 10 or 12 feet and knocked it down about three feet. And somehow I remembered that walking down 
Now, here's all the things that's going on in my mind about winning the tournament, this and that and the other. And I remembered about the guy, who was it, George Lowe or somebody told me, he said, when you got a little short putt, so just go ahead and knock it in rather than mark it and, you know, taking the time and everything. So I thought about that. And I said, I go ahead, not thinking about the fact of marking it. And until I, until I was standing over it, I said, well, I should have marked that and let uh, Torino putt. No, you've been over it too long. Go ahead and putt now. And I looked down and I saw it looked like a little piece of um, dirt. Which where the sun had burnt the top of a piece of grass there. Mm -hmm. And I raised back up, and they laughed over here behind me. I said, well, I'll battle them last. I get back over there. Well, you should let Lee put. No, you've been here too long. Go ahead and put. Well, go ahead. Boom. Missed it. So that's, you know, all of that together, rather than... Now, Kenny Steele said he, he told me he was sitting with Hogan, watching this on television. And Hogan says, back away. Back away, Doug. Back away. Because he's looking, you know, seeing me going through all of the motions. And it was just one thing after another one. And I, I missed the putt. No one's fault except my own. I set myself there and I broke my, my thoughts about just staying right on, right on track. Yeah. And continuing until it's over with. Could you talk to us about the playoff? Well, the playoff, <clears throat> I had one of the greatest shots out of a bunker I've ever hit in my life at the 17th hole. And uh, Jack Nicklaus is one of the greatest bunker shots he's ever seen. I'm kind of a little bit on the down slope. Now I'm looking up there and I can visualize this. I've got about this much room. About three inches? Yep. Three or four inches there to go over it. If I'm, if I'm six inches over the top of it, I'm back in the, in the, uh, the road hole back mm -hmm. there. If I'm three inches short, I'm still in the bunker. And I looked at it and looked at it and looked at it. I said, now it's getting bigger. It's getting bigger. Now it's perfect. Go. Boom. Now I knocked it up with the butt. Two or three feet in the hole. And then on the 18th hole, Jack, I hit a good tee shot. 18 of winds behind him. And I put it about, oh, I don't know, 10 feet off the edge of the green. And Jack took this big old yellow sweater off. I said, look out, Doug. He's, boy, he's going after your butt here, you know. And he knocked it right over the green at 18. The wind's blowing. And that grass is normally you're going to go right underneath it. Big grass is laying down. Hmm. But it landed up right on top of it. And he chipped it down. I chipped my ball up close. And I ended up making my putt. And Jack made about a 12-footer. And then whenever he made the 12-footer to beat me, he took his club and threw right up in the air. And I looked around, and I didn't see the club. Only place is going to be over my head, and I'm going like this. And Jack's trying to get his hands over top of my head, you know, keep me from getting hit. I said, Jack, it's not bad enough to beat me, but hit me upside the head. <laughs> Damn, what, what else am I do I have to do to you, you big boy? You know, <laughs> I'm finished with this. <laughs> Leave me be. You know? <laughs> but they says, Doug says you'll always be remembered for missing that putt, and they'll always be, you know, you'll be famous for that. Now you won't believe this. Jeff, there's probably, I'd say, at least six people ask me, who, who won the tournament that year? They don't even know that Nicklaus won the tournament, but they realize I missed that putt. They says, you'll always be famous for missing that putt. I said, let me tell you one thing. Give me the 150 or 200 million I'd have made over my lifetime about it, and I don't give a damn if you know me or not. You know? yeah. <laughs> but I do care, you know. Does but, it haunt you? Well, it still does, and, and, you know, I just kind of brush it away, but it's there. It's not like something other, you know, that just, 
hangs on to me a lot. It's not like the guy that went to the, see the doctor and then he says, Doc, you got to help me. He says, I, I got a feeling that there's somebody underneath my bed all the time and I, I have a hard time sleeping. He said, well, I can help you. He says, it's going to be about $85 for each visit, but you've got to come twice a week and so it's probably take me at least three or four months to be able to really get it, you know, where you don't believe he's underneath the bed. And the doctor didn't see him, you know, at all. He didn't go back. And finally, he sees him three or four months on the, on the street. He said, why didn't you come back? He said, well, $85 twice a week, you know, for three or four or five months is a lot of money. And he says, and I got it, I got it done for $10. He says, how did you do that? He said, well, I was having a drink with my buddy and bought him a drink and I was telling him about the story. And he said, well, look, only thing you have to do is just cut the legs off the bed and nobody can crawl underneath it. He said, that's what I did, <laughs> cut the legs off. <laughs> so, <laughs> So, so that's what I got to do about, you know, missing that putt. I got to cut the legs off the bed where that memory won't be underneath it. Every life, Mr. Sanders, has peaks and valleys. At one point, you've been quite honest about this. At one point, you considered taking your life. What happened? Well, I had a problem in my neck. It was called torticollis. And they didn't do any operation in the United States on it. It was only in Canada, and they'd only been doing this operation for four or five years. And I started out, I think the telephone was one of the problems I had because for probably, oh, 10, 15 years, I'm always driving a car on the thing, and I always had the phone underneath my ear driving the car. My head bent to the left. And then I was, they said I was going to have to wear contacts, and the doctor said I couldn't wear contacts. So... I wearing glasses, and then whenever I'd go back, my head would move a little to the left, and then I'd have to make it move more because the glasses I was letting the glasses catch the edge of the ball. So then it started moving more and more, and then any touch would stop it. But then it got worse and worse, mm -hmm. and then I'd have to hold it up and you know, like this to talk. Yeah, and with, with your hand on your chin like that. Yeah, yeah. but the the pain got so severe, my head would hit the pillow for an hour or something if I could go to sleep. Mm -hmm. And I got to a point I couldn't live like that. But I didn't want anyone to know, you know, that if I got so bad and I was trying to find some way to get some help and it got just really, really bad and I I just decided I couldn't live. It was going to get better. It had to just get worse. Mm -hmm. And I talked to somebody about if I needed to get my life taken, could they do it, what the price would be, and everything else, and I had it all worked out. And I told him I was going to go to Canada, and I don't, about see if I can get the operation done. If it didn't work, he said, "Well, call me. Call the same way you did to reach me, and they'll get in touch with me." So I went to Canada to meet with this doctor, Doctor Bouvier. and it was the most unbelievable thing I'd ever seen in my life. These people. Had a room almost big as this, full of people, and they had their heads stuck up. And one guy had a mirror because his head's like this, and he had to walk and look at the whole up mirror up, look, look straight up. But everybody's heads down like this and everything. It was just unbelievable the pain that they were in and everything. Mm -hmm. And he told me, he said, Doug, I think I can maybe help you, but I'm, I'm way behind. He says you have to come back and spend a week. I spent, went back. He called me months later. I went back and spent a week with him. And he says, but he says, I'm about two, two and a half years behind in medicine. But I'll try to get you in. So that's in the meantime, that's the time I met 
this guy. His name was Tony to see about doing me if it didn't work. And then it was a few months later that I had to wait. And the doctor finally called me and told me, come tomorrow. It took him seven and a half hours to get me down through here in the back. Mm. But when they took the plug out of my mouth, my throat was too small. I died. I was in a coma for 10 days. I lost about 28 pounds in two months. And I couldn't breathe. The machine would beat my heart eight times before my heart would beat twice. But here I am now. Look at this. I am so lucky. The only thing I knew, I can't turn my head very far. But at all, but that's as far as I can turn it. But at least I'm survived. I didn't get on the plane with Tony. Lima, you know, so many wonderful things have happened to me. And I'm just so much indebted to all the things and God has just given me more ways to be able to do things and I am so blessed and, and that's one of the, another reason I mean I've got so many reasons why that I should give back to the kids and give them some help and I just hope and maybe this thing here can help me a little bit about asking some of the guys on the tour today I've got all the stuff I'm leaving to junior golf and some of the managers don't know who I am. You know, at my age, and they're, you know, young people. And I got one guy, I won't tell you who it is, I call him. And the things that I do, like, for example, every time they win one of the four majors. I have 51 years, I got the four gloves, the guys that win the four majors in the frame. But some of them now, they don't want to send it. One guy wrote me a note and says, Doug, if you send any more, we're not going to send them back. But they don't really know who I am, what I'm trying to do. But this is not for Doug Sanders. This is to leave back for the legacy with these people's names on it. Yes. I don't have my name on, you know, all the things out there. I never won a major. But I did lose. One year, if I'd have birded the 16th hole at the Masters, I would have won there. And I lost the U.S. Open by stroke. Lost the British Open by stroke, but there was another guy tied there. Um, then I lost the P.J. by stroke, but there were some other people tied in that as well. And I lost the British Open in a playoff by stroke. Mm -hmm. But so I could have, you know, easily, if I'd have birdied the 16th hole at the, um, uh, when we played the, the British Open and Jack won, what, 56 at, was it Muirfield, I think? 66, I birded, yeah. You know, if I'd birded, if I'd have parted the 11th hole, I would have won the Masters there. If I just made a par there. If I'd have parted the, the last hole at St. Andrews, I'd have won the British Open. But so, a lot of those things were so close, I could have easily won all four majors. Well, the world needs to know about Doug Sanders. The last question I'll ask you today, sir, is this. If your life is to be made into a movie, what's the title of that movie? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe the the life of the peacock of the fairways or something other, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but, but the thing that I, the thing that would happen in that movie is I see it. Of course, I'm not a producer or anything. But I think you'd have to have different people. You'd have to have some kid, you know, whenever I was going, to, going out there six and seven years of age looking, you know, for golf balls and everything. And then the person, whenever I won the National Junior when I was 17. And then maybe that person could be the same person that up to I won the... Uh, Canadian Open as an amateur, then another person could pick up when I was on the on the on the tour. But um, 
I think it could be done, but I think a lot of good things, you know, you could see in there. It'd be a different thing about, you know, the planes I flew in and things of that nature and playing golf with presidents and one king. And But, you know, I think, I just think back sometimes that how fortunate I am to have found a game called golf. And that's the only sport, if you ever look at it, that you can ever play and talk to your people at the same time. You can't talk to anybody when you're playing football. You know, you're going to throw a pass, and you can't say, hey, how's your buddy today? You know, throw the pass. Uh, or, or basketball, or baseball, anything. But golf, it's the only sport to... Carl Lewis ran... He came down one morning. I had Doug, uh, Willie Nelson celebrity... Willie Nelson, Doug Sanders celebrity fun run. It was a 5K at my tournament. And Carl Lewis is riding down with us that morning. He's going to run it. He says, Doug, today is history for me. I said, why is that, Carl? He says, this is the first 5K I've ever run in. I said, yeah, and didn't win it either. <laughs> but now, what about, I could give Carl some strokes. It could come to the last hole, the 18th hole, and maybe a three-footer I've got to beat him. Maybe he's got a three-footer to beat me. But now, what are we going to do? We're going to run a 100-yard dash? What is he going to spot me, 95 yards? <laughs> I mean, there's not much contest that. But you do have that in, in golf. So that's the reason that people, as you get older, a guy doesn't, when you get 60, 65, 70, 80 years old, nobody calls you up and says, hey, you want to go kick some balls today? You want to play basketball? Now let's hit some baseball. Let's play golf. Okay. It's a great sport. And it'll be there and on and on. But the kids today, they got a wonderful chance out there. But when we grew up, all, everybody wanted to be a hero in school. If you're a little taller, basketball. Ten points hero. Weighed 175 pounds. Two touchdowns, hero. And and then baseball, a little stronger, you know, two home runs, hero. But in golf, only people play golf were misfits. Weighed, you know, nine and a half and 130 pounds, 135 pounds. They weren't big enough, fast enough, tall enough to play other sports, and they played golf. But today, they seen today how valuable that can be. Mm -hmm. It's another life out there today. And it's a life that you've got forever. It's not like you play football and baseball. You have to give up over a certain period of time. You can play this forever. It's just a great thing. It's a great thing for the kids to get started, too, because they can get out there and get mix and mingle with other kids. A lot of them today, they go in, sit on the couch, read the paper, and get on the machine, and that's where they stand. But they, go, they can't go out there and talk to people. But if you're out there playing golf with your buddies, your buddies, you can talk about the things happening. It's a great, great sport. Mr. Sanders, thank you for all that you have meant to the game of golf, and thank you for your time, sir. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And let me just say one thing. Thank God for what it's done for me.